It is the OU Jewish Reaction Show, which you hear here at the Nahum Siegel Network every single Tuesday, 9 a.m., right after JM in the a.m. And uh, as usual, we have interesting guests for you and discussions of note in our community uh, that we bring to you on a weekly basis. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including on Facebook, uh, the Nahum Siegel Network Facebook update page, simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network. It is as simple as that. And you'll be up to date on everything happening throughout our schedule and some of the uh, interesting things that are going on as a uh, typical week goes on here at uh, the NSN Network. The um, the executive director for the OU Advocacy Center is our good friend Nathan Diamond, who is always with his hand on the pulse of what is happening, especially vis-a-vis uh, Washington and in other areas of the country as well. We got an opportunity to have... Uh, an update from him here at the OU Jewish Reaction Show. Nathan Diamond, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Pleased to be with you as always, Nahum. I appreciate that. Your reaction to um, Governor Cuomo and uh, what he did this week in terms of uh, anti-BDS legislation in New York State. Well, what, uh, what Governor Cuomo did was was take a very uh, important and meaningful step uh, in actually being the first governor in the country uh, to issue an executive order saying, uh, as, he, as he put it, um, if, you, if you're a company that does business with anti-Israel BDS groups, then you're not going to be doing business with the state of New York. Um, he ordered all New York government agencies to, to not be involved with companies or other entities that support the anti-Israel BDS movement. Um, and uh, and him taking that executive action is 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 a testament to to uh, Governor Cuomo and and how obviously close New York is to the state of Israel. Now I, I, we we've heard of other states taking action. Are those uh, bills that have gone through state legislatures? And that's the difference between that and this. How, how did that work? Yeah, uh, that, that that that's exactly right. Uh, there there are a handful of other states that have passed legislation. New York hasn't yet passed its legislation, so the governor uh, took matters into his own hands, basically. And did he have any opposition to this among New York state legislators? No. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, so probably, he, probably only some New York state legislators who said, "Darn, we didn't get the chance to, you know, strike first because the legislator can, you know, move moves more slowly." <laughs> well, that begs the question of what took him so long. Then, isn't this something he should have done a little while ago if he was going to do it anyway? Uh, I don't. You know, he they, <laughs> they these things. You, know, you never know how these things percolate. Obviously, the fact that he was marching in the Israel Day Parade yesterday. Was a uh, was a catalyst for uh, for them saying, "Hey, let's let's do something. Uh, let's do something for the pro-Israel agenda." Is there a way for you to convey to this audience why these state decisions um, and passage of bills similar to what other states have done, and obviously similar to the executive order that the governor of New York has signed? Uh, could you explain to this audience why they are of importance, even six thousand miles away from Israel? <clears throat> Um, they're important on a few levels. I mean, first, one, one level I can say, sitting here in Washington today, is that uh, is that when when a number of states uh, get together and do similar things, that that generally prompts Congress uh, or folks in Congress to look at it and say, "Hey, uh, New York did this, and Ohio did this, and New Jersey did this, and maybe we should be looking at doing something at the federal level." Um, and in fact, Senator Schumer came out uh, yesterday or this morning and said he, he's going to be looking to introduce legislation on the federal level along these lines. Mm. So it's a prompt 
um, for for federal lawmakers to act. Um, in terms of the issue itself, uh, it's 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 important uh, because the look, I, I personally believe that. Uh, this this might be a little controversial, but I personally believe in a lot of ways the BDS movement um, um, is more uh, noise, albeit harmful noise, than than impact. Right. Um, I mean, the economy of the state of Israel is very strong, um, you know, startup nation and all that, and, and, and it's really the case that certainly in the Western world, um, throughout Europe, United States, Canada, uh, and even in developing countries as well, there's a great interest in doing business with Israel and with Israeli companies. Um, and, and the BDS movement has not had the traction to really negatively impact the economic uh, vitality of Israel. But um, it, 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 is, it is on the symbolic level been very, very harmful in, in continuing to spread anti-Israel messages um, and sentiments uh, throughout the world, and so when, um, and particularly on the liberal end of societies, so that when you know a proudly liberal Democratic governor like Andrew Cuomo stands up and says, "I'm dead set against this, and I'm going to exercise my power to make a statement that I'm against this," that's a very important counter message and counterweight. Uh, to to the to the drumbeat of the BDS movement. Yeah, no question about that. Nathan Diamond's with us, executive director of the OU Advocacy Center. Tell us about the uh, not-for-profit security grant funding and where it stands now in terms of uh, the government commi- <clears throat> commitment to it. Sure. Uh, look, we at the OU are very proud to have uh, uh, helped spearhead the creation of this program in 2007, under which uh, nonprofit organizations, including uh, predominantly in its history, it's been synagogues and day schools in the Jewish community and JCCs and many other Jewish institutions have been able to get federal grants to make their buildings uh, more safe and putting in security systems, putting in fences, putting in bollards and, and various other things. And over the course of the program since 2007, we're, we're approaching a $200 million mark um, in grants having been made. Um, uh, and uh, where we are this year is that, first of all, we, we anticipate uh, any, sometime in the next probably three to six weeks um, the, uh, the grants are going to be uh, awarded, uh, grantees are going to be announced for those who applied for this year, um, and they'll be getting word about that. And now we're also in the middle of the appropriation cycle in Congress uh, for next year's money, and um, we work very closely with... Um, uh, a couple of key senators, uh, particularly Senator John Hoven, who's a Republican from North Dakota and chairs the Homeland Security Appropriations Committee in the Senate, um, and Barbara Mikulski, who's a Democrat from Maryland. Uh, and we, we, we have the Senate uh, legislation um, earmarking $20 million for this program for the coming year. Uh, but the appropriations process is not yet finished, uh, so uh, we're still working that issue. But we're hopeful that for next year, there'll be another $20 million in funds available to keep people in shoals and schools and elsewhere safe. And uh, just, to, uh, just so I understand what you said earlier, and synagogues and schools apply for it and, and, and in advance of the allocation? Is that how it works? 
Yeah, well, they, uh, well, uh, you know, it's what's going on simultaneously is so last year Congress appropriated twenty million dollars, and for for this year, this year's budget. So this year, school schools and schools have applied, and they'll be they'll be hearing in the next several weeks whether you know they're awarded the money. And while that's going on, we're also working with Congress to appropriate the money for next year. Right. So those two tracks are happening at the same time. And you're hoping that'll we're be. We're, we're, we're also we're also uh, pursuing uh, um, uh, what what we've developed as a uh, sequel, so to speak, uh, to this grant program. Um, you know, one of the one of the significant operating costs that is faced by synagogues and day schools and other nonprofits um, are their utility bills. Right. Um, especially you think about you know a lot of shoals are in very large buildings um difficult to heat in the winter and cool in the summer and all that um and we've developed a proposal which is also moving its way through congress um to make a uh, to create a, a grants program to help nonprofits make their buildings more energy efficient um and we got that passed through the senate actually just before pesach and uh we're working we're working towards getting that finalized with the house of representatives as well so that's hopefully going to be another um, significant funding stream for institutions in our community. Does the fact that these are religious institutions still become an obstacle in this whole process? I know I saw with the uh, uh, with the question about the the playgrounds that were being uh, uh, resurfaced for religious institutions. That seemed to be an issue. Um, th- th- are these things, utility bills, etc., for uh, religious institutions? Do they become an issue as well? Yeah. So, so as a matter of constitutional law. At the federal level, it's not it's not an issue. There are there are decisions from the Supreme Court which, which which clearly indicate that at the level of federal constitutional law, if you're setting up a general program that's not specifically targeted to religion, and it's not for the purpose of supporting religion, um, but religious institutions qualify, that's just fine. And that's why you know these programs, while they while they significantly help the Jewish community, um, they 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 will help. There are other nonprofits, whether they're religious or not religious, as well. Um, so that makes them constitutionally viable. At the state level, um, many states have more restrictive uh, provisions in their state constitutions, which prohibit state government money going to um, religious institutions. That's the basis of the case that's in the Supreme Court right now, coming out of Missouri with the with, with the church. It was denied um, uh, a grant to have their playground resurfaced solely on the basis that they were a church. Um, similarly, what just happened in New Jersey, where um, not the not not it wasn't the New Jersey Supreme Court yet; it hasn't gotten to that level. But a mid-level appeals court in New Jersey um, ruled that some state grant funding to the Lakewood Yeshiva, uh, to base Medrash Gavoa, was unconstitutional under the New Jersey Constitution. Mm. Um, so that's an issue that's uh, both before the U.S. Supreme Court, which could decide, um, which could issue a ruling next year that nationally um, um, impacts all the state, all these state constitutional provisions. Um, then, and we also know that we're probably going to see a specific ruling in New Jersey as well uh, on that issue. It's a, you know, it's also. But, but but at the same time, people people make political arguments, so to speak, about church-state separation. Um, up there in New York, in the city, uh, you had the New York Times editorial board last week um, denouncing 
um, a New York City pool that's located in Brooklyn uh, for providing uh, separate swimming hours for women, um, that Orthodox women in particular, but for any women, um, a few hours a week to be able to swim without men in this uh, in this New York City pool. Right. And the New York Times, in a really over-the-top editorial, uh, said this was terrible, that it violates separation of church and state, which is not true as a matter of constitutional law, um, and, and spoke very harshly about this policy. Um, so people have, in the, some people uh, have in mind what they think is unconstitutional, even if it isn't. Right, and they use a very broad interpretation of the term, in, ter- right. in terms of church and state, I mean. Right. And they'll put... The words, the words separation of church and state do not appear in the Constitution. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a starting point to think about these things. So how did it become such a, uh, <laughs> such a hot flash uh, um, uh, topic? Uh, if it's not oh, even... there's a long, there's a long history there. I mean, it's certainly, certainly in the colonial period in the United States, um, you know, the founders of this country were, were among other things, came here because they wanted religious freedom, um, and they did not want a, a state-established religion, um, and uh, so that's a bedrock principle. Uh, um, but. You know, people are people, so you have these, these state constitutional provisions, which I mentioned earlier, which are very, very restrictive um, um, on state money supporting religious institutions, are actually called Blaine Amendments. And they're named after a United States senator that served in the 1800s named James Blaine, who ran for president. Um, um, and, and, and he was, at the, at the time, there was a huge wave of Catholic immigration to the United States, and the Protestant majority felt very threatened by the Catholic immigration, and um, he ran on a very anti-Catholic platform, and part of his platform was he wanted a federal constitutional amendment um, to restrict government money because they were worried that the, that the Catholics were going to get government money and it would spread Catholicism and the Protestants didn't want that. He failed to get the federal constitution amended, but he, that was the catalyst for many of the states adopting those, um, adopting those uh, restrictive provisions into their state constitutions. So yeah, a, a, even though we were founded on religious freedom, um, you know, you, you, we definitely have had instances of, of, of sort of anti-religious sentiment, and sometimes people pursue that um, by, by championing separation of church and state. Nathan Diamond, Executive Director of the OU Advocacy Center. Is it still a frustrating thing that uh, not enough people in our community nationwide are registered to vote? Um, yes. <laughs> it's a killer, uh, right? Is a, is a short answer. Um, you know, uh, everybody needs to be registered. Everybody needs to get out and vote. Everybody needs to get out and vote, not just for president or senator or governor. Um, you know, we, 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 we're constantly reminding people or educating people that so many decisions are made um, at your city hall or at your village hall or at your county executive uh, office um, that, that, that in a lot of ways impact your life um, on a day-to-day basis more than things that are discussed in Congress. Um, and, uh, and, and it's really important for as many people in the community as possible to be involved and active and engaged at all levels, but particularly focused at the state and local level, um, where, where kitchen table issues um, get decided at least as much as they do in Washington. Yeah, no question about that. 
Uh, a particular interest in the national election seems in our community, but I don't know if it's uh, enough to get people to uh, to register and become active in these campaigns. And there are many key states, not just New York and New Jersey, where we are from, but there are many key states around this country where the Jewish vote could have a, a real impact this time around. Not that it, not that there's been an election where it doesn't, it doesn't have an impact, but this time around it seems it really can have an impact. Oh, sure. I mean, look, the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish vote has traditionally had an impact in, um, in Florida, um, in, in Ohio as well. Um, when, when, and, and Ohio, you know, no, no Republican has won the presidency um, in many, many years without winning Ohio. Um, so that's a that's a significant state with a significant Jewish population, but again, it's also it's not only at the presidential level. Um, you know, it's it, it, the one thing we know about this year, uh, this year's election cycle is that uh, it's 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 a, as unpredictable as it possibly could be. Um, but one of the things that might uh, be determined also, besides the presidential outcome, is whether the Republicans or the Democrats are controlling Congress. Right. Um, and so for, and one of the key races for that is in Pennsylvania, where Senator Toomey is an incumbent Republican and is running for re-election. Um, and at the presidential level, Pennsylvania might not be close this year, although I think Donald Trump is going to try to make it close. Um, but, the, but the Senate race will certainly be close, and that Senate race really, uh, and maybe, and, and just one or two others, uh, will likely determine whether it's a Republican Senate or a Democrat Senate, um, and, and the Jewish community in Pennsylvania will definitely have an impact on that. It'll be interesting to watch. I thank you so much for your time. Nathan Diamond is Executive Director of the OU Advocacy Center. And a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, continued success with all the work that you uh, do on behalf of the community uh, nationwide. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Great to talk to you as always, Nathan. Appreciate that. Nathan Diamond, OU Advocacy Center. He's the executive director. You are listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show. This is the Nahum Siegel Network.
OU Jewish Reaction Show on this Tuesday continues here at the Nahum Siegel Network, and our good friend Rabbi Dave Felsenthal is with us via telephone. He is the head of OU Next Gen. Uh, in addition to all of his uh, work in that capacity, there are new initiatives which are constantly being introduced, including one which we'll speak about that's happening at the end of this summer. Rabbi Dave Felsenthal, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much, Nachum. It's amazing to be back with you. I appreciate that. Great to speak with you. Uh, all right, let's start with the OU Next Gen. Explain to the audience what it is. Okay. So, uh, like 10 years ago, we realized that we had many, many programs that were all dealing with the same audience, uh, college students, young professionals, following up after NCSY and all the birthright trips and all the JLIC campus programs. And we decided to merge them all into one division so that we could all work together in the same direction and create all sorts of great new synergies because of that. And it's been a tremendous experience, and we just continue to find awesome ways to service the Jewish people. And uh, sort of, so it's sort of like a one big alumni association. Yeah, a big alumni association, but also a connection. Uh, you know, we have we have connections to the best kids out there from all the various programs, and we try to find new programs for them. So we do a lot of, of connecting kids to the next step, uh, going on more learning programs, going to Israel for college, going to Israel for internships, and you know, all sorts of you know, the next steps. And this never ends, because every time someone's at the next step, you're thinking of the step after that, right? A hundred percent. Always trying to think a step ahead. <laughs> yeah, even if they get older, even if they're, you know, they're, you still want to be there to service them if need be. A hundred percent. All right, so when you talk about the synergy and the programming and what has been developed because of this, you know, type of relationship, give us an example. What's happened that has, uh, you know, taken OU Next Gen to the next uh, step? Well, my, my, I mean, besides the project that we're going to talk about, my, uh, my, my favorite project I'm working on at the moment is a chance for following up on all birthright students. Mm-hmm. Um, the Birthright Foundation um, has partnered with us, and uh, we are right now able to offer uh, some of our follow-up programs to all birthrights through the Birthright Foundation and their new app. And, uh, you know, we're piloting with them right now. Um, but we do have the opportunity to step into that space and really offer our follow-up programs to all birthright students. And that's, a, that's a, a very exciting possibility that I'm working on very hard. So it's much different in terms of follow-up than it used to be. I guess there was not much, if any, right, in, that, in the old days, so to speak. And now they have an opportunity, a formal type of program to, to pursue. Yeah, I mean, the Birthright Foundation has always found it very important to follow up, but, you know, they have tried several formulas, and they're always looking for the, the best formula. And right now they're putting together an app so that students can see what's available for them in their local communities. Um, but one of our programs, Bring Israel Home, where we offer the students the chance to return, to bring their Israeli soldiers who joined them for five days on their trip to America for a reunion together, um, and in exchange, what they have to do is they have to do 100 points of Jewish educational activities called the 100-point challenge. And uh, I developed this program together with Rabbi Dave Markowitz when he was at Asia Torah, and now it's, now it's totally just an OU program. And uh, it's, it keeps kids engaged nonstop after their birthright trip for, for three months and sometimes even longer, where they're constantly doing Jewish activities and they're pushing each other and they're posting it on Facebook and the soldiers get involved <laughs> and they do educational activities. It's a beautiful program. Have many of them taken advantage of this already? So we've done about 30 groups so far wow. um, in, in the last few years, and uh, we're getting ready to roll it out to all birthright. Pretty amazing. All right, Dave Felsenthal is with us, head of OU Next Gen. All right, there's a newly established birthright-type trip. It's happening. It's starting at the end of August. 
and it's a trip for adults. Now, Birthright in general goes till the age of 25, 26, right? Correct, 26. So, so what, is, what is this one all about? So we're constantly asked by parents, you know, is there something for me? And, you know, we always say no. But we realized, you know, parents can't afford to pay, you know, something for their trip. It doesn't have to be a free trip. And, but they would still love the chance to have the same type of experience. And because we deal in such massive numbers, we can get them a very high-quality trip for less expensive than, than they would get otherwise. Right. And they could also have a taste of what their, stu- what their, their kids come back raving about and that they wish they could have. Uh, and these parents, is there an age limit? Is there a you know, specific type of specifications or qualifications that they need in order to participate? Um, there's no age limit. I mean, we, we they have to obviously be older than a birthright participant. So, you know, we just, they have to be older than 26. Uh, but, but most parents who have kids who went on birthright are definitely older than 26. Uh, um, we do have two different types of, of trips that we're offering. One we call the classics, which is for first-time adventurers that they want to experience, you know, what's all the hype about, why do their kids love it so much, you know, get that same experience. And then another one's called Off the Beaten Path, and that's for those who have been to Israel before, but they want to come now and experience more. So we're servicing those two different areas of parents, and there are trips for those who are unaffiliated, and there's trips for those who are uh, connected and want to take advantage of that. So there are two different versions of each uh, of each trip. All right, how do people get information about this? So um, they could either send an email to uh, gitit, G-I-T-I-T, at tjj.co.il um, in order to, uh, to get more information. Um, they could also uh, contact uh, Simcha Himmel, who is my executive assistant here in the OU, and he's also a programmer, and he, he could be glad to help them as well. Um, his uh, phone number um, well, actually, I have the old one here, but his uh, his email address is Himmel, H-I-M-M-E-L, the letter S, as in Simcha, at OU.org. And um, either either of those would be a great way to uh, get more information. So we're going to get to a point, basically, where anybody who has not been to Israel who wants to go is going to be afforded that opportunity. It may be, it may be a discounted price. In other words, they may have to pay something, as you're describing. Mm-hmm. But uh, these subsidized trips are going to start appealing to every age group. We hope so. We hope so. Um, you know, for right now, uh, I'm really just looking for the uh, the parents. Uh, but uh, if they have friends who want to go, or you know, other kids that they want to bring along with them, and all that, you know, we're we're open to it. Um, but we're really marketing right now to parents of, of students, not just birthright, by the way, but also of NCSY summer programs. All right, understood. Anybody who's been to Israel whose parents wonder why it's been such a great experience. Exactly. Um, uh, what about follow-up for them? Uh, you know, follow-up for the younger folks may be a little easier. Uh, what about follow-up for those who are, uh, you know, with families already? And, uh, uh, you know, what do you do with them when they get back from Israel? So we have a few ideas. Um, we have a few ideas we're, we're working on. Um, we haven't solve that piece yet. Um, we will definitely send along uh, professional staff or two, uh, probably two on each trip, um, who will, whose goal will be to follow up with them afterwards. Um, depends on, uh, you know, it really depends on which group it is and what kind of follow-up is going to be needed. We're also um, in talks with, um, with uh, the same organization that, rep- that supplies JWRP with their follow-up programming 
um, to work with our, our participants, and also with the same organization that supplies um, Israelis, uh, Israeli parents to join the trips um, to, to add to the, uh, to the experience as well. Because that in birthright trips, one of the highlights is that five is eight Israelis join for five days. So we're we're working on trying to be able to add that into this formula as well. Very interesting, and uh, I guess they'd be seeing many of the sites that uh, that their kids have seen already. Yeah, yeah, with uh, English speaking tour guides and all the transportation and the hotels and the food and you know all that included, and uh, seeing you know all the amazing sites. Uh, we got a great itinerary that we could send to anybody who wants to see it. Uh, what's the reaction been so far? I mean, you're planning on going at the end of August, right? Yeah. So we we had over eight. We've had over 80 parents say that they're interested so far, um, which is a very nice start. Um, again, until they actually fill out the application and all that, that's a different story. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think, and we barely, we were just starting to market. I mean, we just like really right now, just starting to market. That was all just like interest from that happened while we were researching it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that we'll have at least one full bus, and we may have as many as four. All right, Dave Felsenthal is with us, head of OU Next Gen. Um, what percentage of the birthright trips are now handled by the OU? Um, so it varies. We're, we're always in between the third and the fifth largest provider each round. Um, we have 33 buses that we're running ourselves, plus another four buses that we've outsourced to other organizers to run for us because we, we went over the number of, of buses we're allowed to run in certain areas um, in our recruitment. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I'd say we're like the fourth or the fifth largest right now. And this program that you described in terms of the parents, that's exclusively OU, right? Yes. Um, there are sim- there are similar programs run by a couple other organizations. Ours is much less expensive and much more substantial. Uh, interesting. All right. So people need to know that uh, that this program continues to expand, and that people of all ages are going to get an opportunity to go to Israel. Uh, it, it, what what do you do with people who have not been there for quite a long time? Do, are they eligible as well, or is this yeah, of course, of anybody, course, anybody who hasn't been there uh, in a while, so to speak? Yeah, and if they've been there again recently, we have the uh, off the beaten path one where we right. can we can use our our uh, connections that that from the massive number of students we bring to bring them to exclusive activities that they wouldn't have done before. All right. Information about all this, you want to email Geet, uh, Geet, that's G-I-T-I-T, right? Yes. At tjj.co.il, G-I-T-I-T at uh, tjj.co.il. You can speak with Simcha Himmel as well via email, Himmels, it's H-I-M-M-E-L-S at O-U.org, H-I-M-M-E-L-S at OU.org. Rabbi Felsenthal, anything you'd like to add about all this? No, just, this is very exciting. I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to finally give these parents what they've been asking for for so many years, and it should be a lot of fun to uh, see Israel through their eyes as well. Yeah, no question about it. You know, you think about the uh, incredible experience our kids have had, why not give it to them as well? I thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Nachum. Rabbi Dave Felsenthal, head of OU Next Gen, a uh, brand newly established birthright type trip for adults for the parents of the uh, birthrighters. Um, uh, that's happening and starting at the end of August. Already a uh, a big buzz around it, and uh, a lot of people registering for it. And uh, any information you need, you can email gitit g i t i t at t j j dot c o dot i l g i t i t at t j j dot c o dot I-L. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program here at the Nahum Siegel Network. It's uh, every Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Time right after JM in the AM. Information, go to our Facebook update page simply entitled Nahum Siegel Network. And thank you for listening to NSN all day long.